0: Amen. And now remain standing for one more scripture reading. This this one is our sermon text found on page 680. I've selected a passage from the prophet Isaiah, one of the great prophecies of our Savior's birth. We'll be reading together Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. This begins on page 680. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Thus us far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that you are a zealous God. And that you are taken up completely with the greatest thing of all, which is your glory. And Lord, we know that we, as fragile and as often very sinful creatures, are not taken up with your glory, but much lesser things. And so we pray in this time, Lord, as we've just heard your glorious word, we pray that you would now give us attention for that which is truly most glorious, which is you. And you'd help us to know you better, and not just to know you better, but to live more in keeping with what you have spoken. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I recently read Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, Young Goodman Brown, and it's about a, a young man in a New England village in America who comes to realize that all the people in his town that he thought were the most upstanding people, the, the, including the minister and some very like upstanding church members who are outly, outwardly very godly, he comes to realize in the course of the story that these people are actually secretly in league with the devil. And it's an astonishing thing that comes to light. And in the course of the story, this young man is sorely tempted to throw in his lot with the devil too, for he says to himself, there is no good on earth. All the people he thought were good were not. There is no good on earth. To the devil is this world given. In other words, he's saying to himself, what's the point of resisting the devil when this world is already given over to him? When all the goodness that seems to be in in this world is just that. It's just apparent. It just seems to be good, but it's actually not good. Really, the devil's running everything. Now, this may seem somewhat dark beginning to a Christmas sermon, but stick with me. Stick with me. Because you cannot fathom the greatness of Jesus coming. You cannot fathom how awesome his work is for us, and why he needed to come, if you don't first reckon with the darkness of this world without him. And when you think about Goodman Brown's despair, can you relate to him? This feeling that, wow, there's nothing good left in this world. Have you ever felt that way? Can you relate to to the disappointment of Finding people that you thought were, like, really upstanding, wonderful people, Uh, maybe they're not as far gone as actually being in league with the devil, right? But they let you down. They show themselves to be more sinful than you thought they were. Can you relate to this this feeling? Maybe it comes when you're reading too much of the news, (laughs) that everywhere you look, where there seems to be something good, it's actually just corruption. Really, corruptions everywhere. And virtue is not. And especially, I think, for us as Christians in the present society where we live, as we consider really this fall of America from a place where, in the Broadway, Christ and the scriptures were at least revered, to now Christians are this embattled, disenfranchised minority where basic. Seemingly very basic things, like marriage and gender, they're being thrown out the window by, you know, by the huge majority. Aren't we tempted in times like that, when we think about that, aren't we tempted to think of our nation as this plane that's got both engines burning and it's in this death spiral, and we start to think, this world is given over to the devil. Now, the whole reason why they make Hallmark Christmas movies is to get our mind off of this sort of thing, right? (laughs) So we're not thinking about that stuff anymore. And this is not a snarky jab at Hallmark Christmas movies, but I love you all, and I want something deeper for you all. I want a deeper joy for you. And I want you to know that you cannot know that deeper joy until you first understand just how dark the darkness is. So what do the Scriptures say? What do the Scriptures say to Goodman Brown? What do they say to us? What does it say about the one to whom this world is actually given, the actual owner of the world? And to answer this, we're going to look at one of the great prophecies of Jesus' birth, Isaiah 9. And then we're going to see how that prophecy is already fulfilled in Jesus coming as a man. And then we'll see, okay, how do we live this with this gospel really at the forefront of our mind, having enduring hope that lasts actually beyond Christmas, that enables us to live with hope the whole year long. So first, Isaiah's prophecy. And I think as you're looking at this passage, and you understand the context of Isaiah in the 700s B.C., roughly, I think the people in Isaiah's day would have really related to us when we feel a sense that everything is tanking. In their time, in their case, you've got this mega empire of Assyria who is swooping down on the land of Israel, and they've already trampled the northern ten tribes, this nation to the north of Jerusalem. They've already trampled all those guys. They've sacked Samaria, this capital city, and now they're encroaching on Jerusalem. And as you're trying to absorb that picture, that picture of this vast horde of pagan, brutal people, who are overrunning the the whole country to the north, turning the the uh, the land of milk and honey right into this land of desolation and a wasteland? You have to remember this. That's one thing, right? This this army desolating, but there's even a worse foe that's already been ravaging the entire land of both Israel and Judah, which is Satan. Israel had already long before Isaiah's day been overrun with a spiritual foe such that everybody in Israel and even in Judah are worshiping other gods. Idolatries everywhere, very, very few are caring for the Lord and his law. And so when it talks in Isaiah 9 verse 2 about the land of deep darkness, it's talking about the land of Israel. It's talking about the people that are dwelling under the darkness of Satan's lies and Satan's power. It is the land that is living in Isaiah's time under the threat of foreign empires coming in who hate God and who are taking over. And what does it say to this land dwelling in darkness? It says, notwithstanding, that the land that currently dwells in darkness, on that land, a light will shine. The people who walked in darkness will see A great light and by the way as I'm expanding this you'll notice I changed the past tense verbs to future that they have seen I'm saying they will see and the prophets one of the things they do is they're so certain they know so certainly of God's future they'll sometimes speak as though it had already taken place right but these are future events here so this land of darkness will have light shining on it and this light will lead to great joy Verse 3, he says, He will increase their joy. In other words, the joy of the people of Israel. They will rejoice before God as with the joy at the harvest, as when they are glad, when they divide the spoil. It's happy time. Why? Three reasons. And he gives them all in verses 4 through 6. You notice how each of those verses begin with the word for. He's explaining, why are they so happy? Why are they rejoicing? First, Verse 4, it says, God will break the yoke of their oppressors like he did back in the days of Gideon. Remember Gideon from the book of Judges, how God used this really seemingly very weak and humble man to break the oppressive rule of these foreign empires, the the land of Midian, which was crushing them. Just like he did for Midian, he says, I'm going to do for you, for Assyria and the deeper foe, which is Satan.'" God is going to topple Satan's rule over his people. And in that great day, you will be glad. That's reason for rejoicing, number one. Reason number two, he says in verse five, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, the tramping boot, what does that represent? It represents all the implements of war that are being brought against them to oppress them. And then the garments rolled in blood, what's that represent? It represents the results of all the war, where all the slain, right? Their garments are all bloody. What do you do? What do you do? When victory has been won, you burn all that stuff. Don't need that anymore. Why? Because God is going to have such a great victory, he's not just going to destroy Satan. He's going to destroy every trace of Satan's power, all the ways that Satan has used sin to ruin the world. And so they're glad. All that stuff is gone. And then verse 3, or thirdly, verses 6 and 7, he says, in place of all of that devastation, there's going to be a new king. To us, a child will be born. To us, a son will be given. This is no ordinary child. Look what it says right after that. The government shall be upon his shoulder. What's that saying? He will be the new ruler, the new king. And as befits this great new king, he will have a noble name. And here's where I'm going to have to beg your pardon for messing with a much loved verse because I think that the translation's a little off here. On analogy with other names in Isaiah you think of swift as the soil quick, uh, quick swift is the spoil quick as the prey. That's Isaiah 8.3. I think that the name, notice how it says singular, the name by which he will be called. The name of this king is probably best translated as a sentence. And the sentence is this. The mighty God is a one who counsels wonders. And the everlasting father is a prince of peace. That's this child's name. In other words, this king's reign is going to show off not just how great he is, but how awesome and how good God is. What a great king God is. He is the God who brings wonders. He is the God who is the prince of peace. Now, we, we know from other passages that this son who's coming, who has this great name, that he is, in fact, the mighty God. That he, We know from other passages that he actually is not just fully man, but also God. But the point of this name is to say that finally we have a king of the line of David, this human king who's going to show people by his reign what kind of a king God is. That he's not like Satan. That he's not like the Assyrians who are constantly taking and exploiting. No. Look at verse 7. This king's reign will bring about peace. That word peace means welfare. Not just the absence of war, but the presence of all that makes for human thriving. That's the kind of reign this king's going to have. He's going to bring about deep goodness and peace. And it says that this king's reign will have no end in scope. In other words, the entire earth, all dimensions of reality will be his, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And then it says, not just the scope will be vast. After all, there have been many kings who ruled a great, great, long time, a great uh, measure of land, and yet they quickly died. No, this king's reign will have no end from this time forth and forevermore, and it will be deeply, deeply good his reign will be filled with justice and righteousness. In other words, not using his power to seek his own selfish ends, but to seek good for those who are under him. It says that it will be all by the Lord's doing. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, this will not just be a kingdom that's run by God's rules. This will be a kingdom that's founded by God's power, and that's why it will never end. Because God's power will intervene to reverse all brokenness. We have his word on it. We have not just this passage. We have the passage that this passage is alluding to, 2 Samuel 7, where God said that he would establish David's offspring as a king forever on the throne. We have his word for it. And if you understand everything that I've just said, what this child is to be, and what his reign is representing as the complete reversal of all that is broken and sinful in this world, then you can start to understand how awesome it is when I now declare to you that this prophecy has come to pass. That when Israel, which seemed to be on the cusp of utter ruin— And God says, well, here's the deeper reality. I'm sending you a king. Now, we, who also at times feel like we are on the cusp of ruin, we now have God saying to us something even better. Not just that the king will come, but the king has come in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the incredible wonder. You want to talk about the, the, you know, Wonderful counselor, the God who, who counsels wonders. Here is the wonder that God has devised in his secret counsel. That he would cause this great king, this son on whom the government rests, to be born as a humble poor boy in a little manger. That he would be born of a virgin and that he would come into this world never to be recognized in his life as the true king that he really was, but in fact to be rejected and despised, and to win his great victory over Satan, not by force of arms, but by actually dying on a cross to pay the debt that our sins deserved. Now try to, try to fathom this as you're trying to comp- compute the fact that this prophecy has already entered history through Jesus. Try to fathom what this means for you and for me, because I think if you get this, you will get such joy, joy that you cannot have any other way. Here's what this baby in the manger meant for Israel then and for us now. It means that the light of God's mercy and love Has begun to shine now. It means the gift of verse 3 in our passage, abundant joy. Notice how they're like rejoicing, like over the the wonderful harvest, and everything's gonna be great joy. That joy is ours now. Why? Because he has come to do all the things in verses 4 through 6, to reverse all the brokenness of this world. This baby is the end of oppression. And think of it, not just human oppression, but spiritual oppression, the oppression of Satan. He has come to reverse the power that otherwise would have run over this world. And of course, all the things that this king's rule means, justice and righteousness and deep peace and human thriving, Jesus now, in his death and his resurrection and his ascension up into heaven he reigns even now and even now is bringing about through his good reign the deep human thriving that only he and his spirit can bring and of course his birth, birth was just the beginning of all this right his birth this baby being born doesn't actually bring all these things about it's just the beginning. It's him entering history. It's really his death and his resurrection, which he could only have done if he was first born, that really accomplished these great things. But here's the big idea. Here's the, here's the big payoff to the question with which we opened. You want to know who does this world really belong to? You want to know who really owns this world and where is this world actually going? You need only look at the manger and realize that the rightful king has arrived on the scene of history. Here he is, the true owner of the world, the one to whom God has actually given the world. It's not Satan. He's here. Jesus Christ has come. And he's come to take Satan, taking Satan's realm away from him and to take it for himself as it rightly belongs. And so the true king He's come. He's come to take the throne, and he's already now, through his resurrection, begun to rule. So whose world is it? It's not Satan's. This is Jesus' world. Now we know Satan's not going down without a fight. Even now, he's received the mortal wound that Jesus dealt him on the cross, and he knows his days are limited, and so he's raging. He's, He's rampaging and trying to take down as many people as he can, by showing them the kind of stuff that he was showing to young Goodman Brown. Look, see all these people who seem so good? They're actually mine. The world sometimes seems to be Satan's. But it really does belong to Jesus. And one day, and this is the great hope that we're looking forward to, one day, what we believe by faith that the world is not Satan's, The world belongs to Jesus. That reality we will one day see. And on that great day, God will climactically declare what we read in Revelation 11, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So I ask you, who will you embrace as the ruler of the world? And it really is an either-or decision. Um, it really is either Jesus or Satan. Like Jesus says in Mark 9, you're either for him or you're against him. So, you know, even the atheist who says, well, I don't believe in Satan. The atheist, if you deny the reality of Jesus, even the atheist who says, I'm claiming this world for my, myself, I'm claiming my life for myself, you're actually on the side of Satan against Jesus. And it's just, it is hard for us. I think, especially in this present time where we're surrounded with like pictures of cutesy babies, <laughs> um, to imagine Jesus as the king. But that's who he is. The kingdom has been placed on his thro- shoulders. And so I want you to see that Christmas is forcing a political decision on you. It is a decision of who you will give your true loyalty to. To paraphrase, Elijah on Mount Carmel, if Satan is king, then worship him. But if Jesus is king, then worship him. And so, whom shall we serve? Let's serve the one whom God has actually given this world to. Let's think of how much of a better king Jesus is than Satan. Like, what is Satan? He's just trying to use us. He doesn't care about us. He's just laughing at us when we follow him to our demise. He's just glad that we're going down with him. Jesus is totally the opposite. He's the king who uses his power to end oppression, to give us true human thriving. And so who's your king? Who's your life honestly dedicated to? If it's not Jesus, if you think that you're able to claim it for yourself, don't be duped by Satan. And here's the wonderful thing. You may be thinking to yourself, well, uh, honestly, my, my life has not been given to Jesus at all, and I'm in really big trouble right now. Well, here's the good news. Jesus is such a gracious king that he welcomes back even former rebels. He came for sinners like you and me. And he welcomes us back. And he gives us the privilege of being his children And all that stuff in the past, all that rebellion in the past, he wipes it all away by the blood of his cross. Now, second point of application is for you who have already given your your fealty to Jesus, who've already bowed the knee to him. Brothers and sisters, do not hold a square inch of your life from the true king. Do not withhold a square inch. We know that Every square inch of this world is given to Jesus, and that includes every sphere of our lives. So, like, what you wear, how you spend your money, what you watch for fun on TV, what, what, how you use all the stuff that you have, what do you do for your education, what do you do for your job, all of those things Jesus claims, and Satan counterclaims. And so, if you're not offering it all to Jesus, then... There's the other false claimant. We don't want to offer anything to him. So don't carve out some little portion of your life and say, oh, look, I've already given Jesus all these things, but I'm going to keep this for myself. Do not be deceived. That little thing is going to become everything. And it's a sign of where your true loyalty lies. And you know, Satan, one of his tactics, this, this comes up actually in the story of Good, Young Goodman Brown, he loves to get us to delay giving our lives to God. He loves to say to us, oh, you can be good tomorrow, but live for yourself today, have a little fun for now, and then get your act in order tomorrow. Except it always seems to be tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Don't believe that. Jesus reigns today. And today is the day when we owe him our whole lives. Today is the day, the decisive day, where we show what we truly believe about who owns the world. Don't hold anything back. Final point is this. If Jesus is the true owner of the world, then that means that Satan and everyone who serves him is doomed to lose, even if right now they look very, very strong. Of course, that was young Goodman Brown's problem, right? <laughs> Satan and his host seems to be everybody. Where's God? Where's the kingdom of God? Don't see it. Satan loves to sow despair in our hearts. He loves to get us to capitulate because we don't have any hope. Because we just see that, okay, he's just going to win no matter how hard I fight. He loves, Satan loves to magnify how powerful he is and how he's totally going to win. Don't believe it. Don't believe it for a second. And that means... You need to not believe what you will sometimes get as the subtext in what you read on the news or in certain corners of social media, certain very fearful corners of social media, the places that want you to believe that everything's becoming unraveled. And of course, that may be true in the short term, but it's not true in the ultimate sense. And you need to not believe it. You need to not believe that Satan is going to win. No. When you see a, a trusted Christian falling into some terrible sin, don't believe in Satan's victory. It may seem that he's won, but not in the long term. Don't believe in Satan's victory when you see decades of your life's labors crumbling in your hands. Don't believe in Satan's victory when you thought you had won this battle against sin, but, oh, here I am again. believe in Satan's victory what Satan most wants us to believe is that he is going to win and the world does not belong to Jesus and by sight that often that claim is often going to seem true to us but we are people who walk not by sight but by faith That's really what Christmas is about, is the resiliency of hope. Here it is, the darkest time of the year, where it seems like things are getting darker and darker and darker. And what does God do? He shines a beam of light into the darkness, and he starts pushing back the darkness. And it all began with that baby being born in fulfillment of Isaiah 9. And so when we look at that baby, we say to ourselves, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We say to ourselves, the light of the world has dawned. And we say to ourselves, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves to you as the true king and owner of the entire world, including us. We do not belong to ourselves, but our entire lives, everything about us, is yours. And Lord, you rightly deserve it all. You made us, and then you saved us. And so we offer ourselves promptly and sincerely, holding nothing back. And we pray that you would help us to be a people of hope, that when Satan seems to be winning, that we wouldn't believe it for a second, because we know of the decisive victory that's already been won on the cross And we know that our Savior lives, and he's alive today. So we look to you, and we pray you'd restore our hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.